Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital... This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. You are listening to episode 213 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. My name is Rob Snow White. This episode, we talk to John Montana Carp. We're going to talk about how to take a train to your favorite fishing spot, how to be sneaky when approaching carp, sight casting to sturgeon, and if anybody has an Orvis carp line they're willing to give up, preferably one still new in a box, let John Montana Carp know he's looking for them. Without further ado, let's go to Portland. Let's talk about some carp. Hi, this is Misha Gill with Speedwell Law. One thing I talk about with my clients all the time is that estate planning isn't for you. It's for the people you love and making their lives easier when you're not around to just take care of things. And the last thing that should be on their minds is, gosh, Did mom have a will? So come see me in the month of December and mention Rob's podcast and get $100 off your flat fee representation. I'm conveniently located in Alexandria, Virginia, across the street from the King Street Metro. This podcast, we have uh, John Montana Carp, or John Montana, or John Bartlett. How do you want us to call you? Um, John Bartlett, that's fine. Yeah, I have a couple different online models. Like the Bartlett pair? Yeah, yeah. Uh, And if you have a celebrity doppelganger that listeners can picture while they're listening, who do they say you look like? Oh, God, I have no idea, man. I'm not super into that uh, that kind of stuff. I literally would have no idea. Okay. No idea who who to predict there. Well, we'll make something up maybe later. All right, so... um. There you go. 
see, you're you're a Westerner. You grew up out in Montana. Yeah, I grew up in Whitefish, Montana, uh, just outside of Glacier National Park. So I, I lived most of my life there and grew up fly fishing uh, the rivers and streams for trout, mostly uh, being from Montana. So I'm guessing you had a pretty spoiled childhood with the outdoors. Yeah, you know, my dad drove trains for a living. Um, he was an engineer for the Burlington Northern, which I remember when I was 12 years old, uh, he was on a work train that was cleaning the tracks uh, outside of Libby, Montana on the Kootenai River. So I went with my dad um, to Libby, and I actually got to ride out on the train out into the wilderness with him every morning, and he would drop me off on the Kootenai, and I would fly fish all day, an eight- or ten-hour day, and then he would honk the train horn, and I would run back up onto the tracks and get picked up by a locomotive and driven back into town for the night. I got to do that for like a week with my dad. That's a, That was a great memory. Talk about is, being spoiled. That yeah. is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, pretty fun. No one else can say they've done that. That I yeah, that was a pretty, pretty, pretty neat experience to be out in the wilds of the Kootenai, you know, just kind of in the middle of nowhere next to a train track. So, so yeah. you, you grew up trout fishing, like four weights, light tippets, matching yep. the hatch, kind of the opposite <laughs> of what you do now when you're out fishing. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was my background. I caught my first trout on the Clark Fork River when I was a kid. Um, my dad and I were downtown Missoula for a football game, actually, and uh, we saw a fly rod in a pawn shop window, so he bought me my first fly rod, and then we literally walked to the Clark Fork, and I caught my first trout. I was probably probably 10 or 11 years old, something like that. Uh, that was my very first experience. You know, growing up in Whitefish, I fished mostly the Flathead River system, North Fork of the Flathead, Middle Fork of the Flathead, um, would do a little bit on the South Fork, uh, did a lot of fishing in lakes out there, the you know, the reservation lakes are pretty close by duck lake and goose and kip and some of these really giant big fish float tube lakes um, but i was pretty much a trout guy all through college and after college when i when i moved back to montana so i didn't start carp fishing until i moved to portland oregon about 16 years ago 15 years ago so what brought you to the city of roses my job um, i work in transportation for a company out of chicago um, prior to that, the small brokerage that I worked at um, had an office in Portland, and I moved out here to kind of work with that office, and then we got bought out by the company I work for now in 2008. All right. Portland's a pretty fishy place to be, but you're not going fishing for what most people fish for. How did that start? Yeah, you know, when I first got out here, I did. The first thing I did when I got to Portland is I pounded on the Deschutes like everybody else. Um, I drive over there on a Friday afternoon and fish in the evening and then sleep in my car and then fish in the morning and drive home. And, you know, the Deschutes is a great trout fishery, probably my second favorite trout fishery in the lower 48. I love Rock Creek outside of Missoula. That's probably my favorite. But the Deschutes is a great fishery. The trout are really strong and the river's big. And, you know, you can hook steelhead, salmon, catch lots of whitefish, lots of trout. It's just a great fishery. So I did that for the first few years I was out here. I dove into the steelhead thing briefly, fishing the local Portland rivers mainly, the Clackamas, the Sandy, um, went to the coast a little bit, fished in the Halem, and did some of that type of fishing. I, I kind of got, I'm not, I'm kind of more of an action guy. I like to have stuff happening. So swinging flies and kind of hoping a fish was in the water just wasn't really for me. 
I liked the steelhead when I could see him and I could sight fish to him, but when I was just kind of covering water, I didn't really love that. So I stuck with the trout mostly. Uh, and then the carp thing, my daughter was going to be born. My wife got pregnant and we were going to have my first kid. And, and I was trying to figure out a way that I could keep my fishing alive without having to drive two hours over to the Deschutes to chase trout. So I started reading about the urban waters in Portland and I knew there were carp in the waters. I read a lot about Bar- by Barry Reynolds. Darce Noble up in Washington was a, a real early carp pioneer. Started reading about carp, and that's kind of how I dove into it. Was looking for a local fishery that I could I could pursue with a, a kid on the way. So that brings me to sort of the whole point of having you on is is finding where to fish for carp when you want to start fishing for carp. What were the the things you did to look for carp in an urban environment such as Portland? Yeah, there's a couple of things you can do to kind of up your odds. Um, first off, I did a lot of research uh, on on carp themselves and. I found out that carp got released into the Columbia in about 1920, something like that. There was a, a carp farm outside of Troutdale, Oregon, actually, where they were being raised as a food fish for the region. Uh, there was a big flood, and the carp got out of the farm and got into the main stem of the Columbia River. So at that point, with how, you know, how tough of a fish they are and, and how they can live in such a wide range of water temperatures and conditions any body of water that was attached to the columbia or had been attached to the columbia at some point has carpet you know the only kind of barrier to that is if the water temperature is consistently too cold like the deschutes river you know something like that but all the local rivers around portland the willamette every pond that's ever been connected every slough was bound to be full of carp. So that was kind of a, a quick way for me to find it, just knowing all I had to do was find a connection to the Columbia. The other thing I did is I specifically started looking for them in the spring when they would be spawning. When the big splashes yeah. are going on. That's that's really the big key. And that's the same thing that, that I tell people when they travel to Lake Michigan too, is you, you want to try to time the spawn. And it's harder to catch them when they're spawning, but it's not that hard to find them. Any shallow, warm water during spawn season is likely to have carp if there are carp in the area uh, and they're pretty hard to miss you know they get in a big thrashing ball of fish and there's water splashing everywhere and you can usually hear them before you even see them so that's the other piece uh, just observation and looking for them at the right time of year so you know kind of what bodies of water they live in is probably the the best tip i can give a guy and over these years have you found any particular characteristics with bodies of water such as substrate, temperature, clarity, that just make better carp water than others? It depends on what you mean by better carp water. And more um, more success in, in finding them and hooking into them? Yeah. Like, What's so your ideal conditions and, and water that you're looking for? Yeah, they're, they're typically, carp really feed in shallow water for the most part, so... You, know, you need to have some shallow water that's between you know knee and thigh deep. That's kind of their ideal feeding area. They will feed in deeper water. Um, a lot of the bait guys on the Columbia fish for them in 20, 30 feet of water. Wow. But for a fly rod guy, yeah, we have feasible. to have them where we can see them. Yeah, we, we, we really need shallow water where we can see the fish and, and cast to it. So any water that you're looking at has to have that component. And kind of the more extensive that you know, two to four foot depth of water that you can find, the more likely there are there. In terms of the bottom structure, 
they they tend to prefer a little bit softer bottom a little bit it, it tends to soak up the sun and warm quicker but i like it to be a little rockier uh that generally means the water is going to be a little clearer it's a little easier to wade i don't really want to fish in a mud pit you know if i have if i can avoid it so i'm looking for kind of a, a rocky mix of rock and sand bottom that's about thigh deep for the most part which basically describes the shoreline of the entire columbia river out here in the pacific northwest how long is it a drive for you to get out there um i fished the columbia from downtown portland uh, i actually caught a 28 pound carp underneath the i-205 bridge one year i fished all the way from right there where the airport is all the way to the tri-cities in washington you know kennewick umatilla way out there and around the bend and back up into washington to the uh vantage and those areas out there too I, I pretty much fished the entire river it has different characteristics the entire river is dammed and there's four or five different dams on it so depending on which section of river you're fishing you get different characteristics closer to portland it's bigger and broader and slower it's a little murkier it's a little more colored up uh, the farther you get east it gets a little shallower and it gets clear and kind of in the middle of the gorge area it's steeper and deeper. So when you get way out east, there tend to be more carp because it, there's a lot more shallow water, a little better habitat for them to live in. But in the gorge, you don't see as many, but the ones you see are generally bigger. You know, you see a lot of 15 to 25 plus pound carp because there's not as many of them. Right. But you have to walk. You have to walk a lot farther to see the same number of fish that you would see out near the Tri Cities. So you can get pretty much different varieties of water in that same system just based on those dams. Yep, hundred percent. It's all based on the topography of the land and the, the dams and the way the water works. As far as the urban ponds go, that you know, all the urban ponds around Portland have carp, and I would suspect in, you know, in the Virginia area, it's likely similar. Um, I know there's a, a local pond by a shopping center that I fished for years out here that has a captive population of carp um, that came out of a creek that they flooded to create the pond, which was attached to a river that dumped into the Columbia or the Willamette, which is attached to the Columbia. So all those years ago, those fish moved all the way up. And then when they kind of dammed it off and created this pond, there's carp in there. Now the carp can't get out. And I've caught probably every fish in that pond five times and they're virtually impossible to catch anymore. They, they're really, really spooky and hard to catch. (laughs) Yeah. Do you look for stuff that has like, these are public. Are there sidewalks around them? Do they have trees? Yeah, you know, that, 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 that's the funny Joggers. thing about it, too. When I first started fishing for them, again, it was to stay really close to home and be with my, my wife and, and newborn daughter. So my, my daughter, Ellie, I used to take her fishing in a little baby Bjorn front pack uh, on the weekend so my wife could sleep in. I'd pack my daughter up in the pack, and we'd go out to these urban ponds. And in those cases, I was on an urban pond with a sidewalk, and trying to dodge the joggers on my back cast as I kind of, as my kids grew up and as I didn't have to do those little two hour stints of fishing anymore, I tend to spend more longer time out. So I try to find places where I'm not dodging uh, joggers with the back cast. But the great thing about carp is you can find them in so many different places that if you just want a quick fix, it's pretty easy to do that. Any of the local water near most people, is highly likely to hold carp. Um, the South Platte downtown Denver, where I go for work all the time, it's full of carp, and every pond nearby is full of carp. 
Yeah, I did some great carp fishing just a little bit north and east of Denver. And I think mm-hmm. a month before we got yeah. there, they had a bow hunting tournament and they caught about six, caught quote unquote, 6,000 pounds. They filled up a couple yeah. dumpsters of carp and we still found schools of 30 to 40 feeding at a time. Yeah. But I don't see that here. If we're out on the drift boat, we usually spook them before we ever can see them. Yeah. And I just don't encounter of, them on foot. We have all this great weird. water, but I just don't see them. It's really hard to find them in a place where you can see them. Like, like I said, the trick is you got to find water where they're going to feed. Um, one of the other things you can look for, a feeding carp, well, it depends on the forage, but most carp are designed or want to feed by feeding on the bottom. They want to root around in the bottom, dig through the mud, push the rocks aside, get to crayfish, get to damselfly nymphs. Uh, freshwater clams are a huge source of food out here. They want to root around in the bottom. So if that's the case, I can walk up to any flat on the Columbia River and see little divots in the bottom. And, you know, you'll see a ton of them if they're in their thick feeding. So you can kind of tell where there's a feeding area just by seeing these little half-circle divots in the bottom. And that's an area you may want to come back and check out later, whether it's earlier in the morning or later in the afternoon. You know, they feed at all different times, so you don't know when unless you just kind of keep checking. Uh, but that's another thing you could look for in your urban areas is look for those pock marks that indicate places where they feed. It's much easier to approach them when they're feeding, when they're kind of busy doing something, than when they're just kind of out there wary. Do you have a preference for the direction in which you approach carp that are feeding? Uh, I mean, yeah, I like to get perpendicular to them uh, so I can present a fly without lining the fish in any way. Uh, if I see a tailing fish and I have the choice, I will always try to sneak to the side of it where I can get a, a good angle on it. But I've afforded that very often. On the Columbia, the standard method for fishing the Columbia, I drive the river, I walk into the water, and I turn left or I turn right, and I walk for about three, four miles and look for fish. So if I'm hiking, and I, I usually get out about thigh deep. I'm fishing to my to the inside and I'm fishing to the outside and I just walk the river. And, you know, if I see one right in front of me, I have to take the shot. Sometimes I can sneak out deeper and get a side angle, but for the most part, I just have to kind of take it as they come. So you're in pretty good shape for doing three to four miles thigh deep. Yeah. You know, I have guys come out and fish with me every year. Um, you know, a lot of friends, my friend Dan from South Dakota comes out. We had him on my friend. years ago on the podcast. Yeah. He looked yeah, like, he said carpet. he looked like Opie from, uh, <laughs> What was that show he, with Eddie Griffith? Eddie Griffith's show. He is, he is kind of a goofy redheaded guy. But he and, you know, my friend Justin and I had Cam from the Fiberglass Manifesto come out. And all those guys, when they come out, I warn them that. You're going to you know, work them. Yeah, a light day with me is about six miles. Nice. Um, you know, and a heavy day is eight. Because we, we pretty much cover three miles of river in a light day. And then we got to walk back to the car. You need someone so on a train. train. What's that? You need to get that train shuttle going out there. <laughs> you know, if there's two of us, it's nice to be able to, to drop a car off at one one area of the river if we can. That's uh, that does shorten it up quite a bit. Definite benefit. Well, when my when my friend Justin and I, Wendy Barrel, as people know him online, when when he and I fish Lake Michigan every year, we get in the water about eight a.m. and we exit the water about seven p.m. and we generally forget to eat or drink. We usually just walk around the lake for. 10 hours looking for fish. That's just what we did. All right, well, let's, let's go to destinations. So 
you go to Lake Michigan, for those that don't know, why is the, that destination so good and what made it so good over the last couple of years? I mean, it's sure. Yeah. So I've caught carp in 10 different States now, which is probably, you know, as many different States as anyone has caught them just because I'm one of these few guys that travels around to do it. The two best fisheries that I know of for carp on the fly are Lake Michigan and the Columbia river. And they're Mm -hmm. completely different fisheries. Uh, The Columbia is much more technical. The carp are slightly smaller. Um, It's much more difficult to get the fish to eat a fly um, because of their forage. Lake Michigan is much tougher on your body. You're making long casts with big flies because of the forage, and it's just more physically demanding. So the reason I go to Lake Michigan is on the Columbia, I'm fishing – tiny flies that I, I call it the hybrid. Most, most guys have seen it online. We'll get into that yeah. one in a bit. Yeah. The hybrid's a good fly. It was designed on the Columbia to work for fish that were targeting clams. And there's a variety of reasons we could talk about it, but it's tiny. It's like a size 12. Um, you go out to Lake Michigan, their primary forage is gobies. Uh, you know, there's a ton of gobies on Lake Michigan. They're an invasive species that is thick on the entire lake. And the carp have evolved to feed heavily on that forage. And the way they feed is they, they, they get in groups of... This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Three to six fish, and they literally just swim down the flat the rocky flat and as they swim if you watch them every once in a while you'll see a carp break out of the group run something down and pin it to the bottom and then it gets back in the group and they swim another 10 feet another one busts out and hunts one down and eats it so it's really fun for me to go to lake michigan where i can throw a you know inch to two inch long goby fly chuck it in front of a carp at 60 feet 80 feet strip until he comes after it and chases it down and eats it it's just a wild experience for a guy that's used to carp not moving more than about four inches to eat a fly. Had you ever fished it before the zebra mussels really cleared everything up? No. I started fishing it. Uh, this was this will be our 10th year in a row that Justin and I have gone out there. We move around quite a bit. We fish it all over. I get a lot of people every year that ask me where. And frankly, all we say is like Michigan. We don't get into specifics. But everywhere we've ever gone, we've found carp. But again you got to, you got to walk, you know, it's hard to just drive up somewhere, get out of your car and catch carp. You got to get up somewhere, get out of your car and be willing to walk two or three miles 
to really find them. They don't like where people can get to, so they're going to stay out of those areas if they can. And what is the gear and packing difference between if you're going to Michigan versus the Columbia? Yeah, for me, not much anymore. You know, I typically fish a, I either fish an H2 uh, eight weight. I have a one piece that I love to use on the, at home on the Columbia. Um, when I travel, I almost always fish a uh, eight foot, 10 weight fiberglass rod from um, Epic Swift Fly Fishing, Epic Fly Rod called the Bandit. Uh, it's a great little stick that I can travel with. And as a 10 weight, I can catch pretty much anything on it. So I, and you're not rods for the most part and you're not casting a whole lot so having a 10 weight is not that exhausting i guess i would say well on lake michigan you're making a lot of long casts you know you're seeing groups of carp at you're mostly targeting smaller groups two three fish and if you if you really want to catch them you got to cast at them when they're 60 70 feet away they're very wary on lake michigan if they get close to you they're unlikely to eat they probably won't spook, but they stop feeding. So you get a big fly. So the 10 weight's great for that. On the Columbia, it's almost all little roll casts, little 20, 30 foot flips. The, you have to get as close to the fish as possible on the Columbia so you can see the take. Uh, that's one of my main rules is to get as close as I can. I, I, I tell everybody that comes out here, do not cast until you can see that fish's head. Keep sneaking up on it. So we have to be really stealthy on the Columbia. On Lake Michigan, we tend to just see the, the fish or the darker shapes and make long, booming casts to them because they'll chase a fly. Do you, have you a, get the fly in the vicinity, they'll chase it. Is there a line preference you use to get your fly out there? Um, my favorite line in the history of all lines is the Orvis carp line, which they discontinued. Uh, you can actually buy their redfish line, and it's basically the same thing. That's by far my favorite carp line ever. And that'll work in colder waters? Works just fine. Okay. I use it on the big sea all the time, and that's the line that's on my reel when I go to Lake Michigan. My friend Trevor Flycarpin, who used to live in Colorado, he's got one more carp line, and all of us are trying to figure out how to get it from him. Next up, okay, uh, what about leaders and tippets? Are these going to break your uh, line? Yeah, you know, carp are big fish, but they're still a little bit wary. I don't know that they see the tippets so much as they feel it. You know, their lateral line is connected to a swim bladder, so they're really sensitive to anything in the water. So I, I pretty much fish uh, 1X if I can get away with it and 2X if I can't. On Lake Michigan, I'll occasionally go to 0X if I'm in a bunch of rocky, bouldery area, but 1X is my go-to. In the summer on the Columbia, you're fishing 2X or you won't get them. In the spring, you can get away with 1X and sometimes zero. Nylon or fluorocarbon? I'm just a monofilament. I'm lazy. You know, fluorocarbon probably would be better for the abrasion resistance because carp, they're typically going to run directly away from you, and then the line lays over their back, and their scales can be pretty rough in the spring when they're spawning. But I seem to catch plenty of fish with just a straight mono, nine-foot tapered leader. And do you use any preference for a knot, like a knot slip mono loop versus a knot that goes right to the eye of the hook? You know, here's where I have to admit that I'm actually a total hack. If I could tie a non-slip mono, I probably would use it. Instead, I just tie an improved clinch knot, and it does fine. There you go. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of a hack. So when you're fishing out on the Columbia, do you have to wear any special clothing so you're not being reflective 
flapping in the wind? Anything special to make you more sneaky and incognito? You know, for years, I kind of bought into that. I tried to wear the right color clothing, tried to, you know, not have a white hat on, stupid things like that. And I don't think it matters. I, I do think the single most important thing that you have to account for is your profile. If you're standing straight up tall, that fish can see you. If you crouch even a little, the refraction in the water makes it much harder for the fish to see you. So, you know, on Lake Michigan, on the Columbia, if you were to fish with, with myself or Justin, you know, Wendy Barrow, one of us that fishes out here a lot, the second we spot a fish, you'd see us start to crouch. We catch a lot of fish on our knees in the shallows, um, and we crouch down immediately. That's, a, that's the single biggest factor that I could tell people. Get lower than, than you think you need to get. You'll be way better off. The fish will not see you as easily. What about making noises, sunscreen smells on you, shadows, any of those things to avoid? Yep. Um, shadows are bad, obviously. Uh, the, you know, the only thing that eats a carpet by the time they get above five pounds is probably a really big bird. So I, I, I would avoid casting the shadow on the fish with your line or your rod or your body for sure. Um, I personally hate sunscreen. And I do think that with how sensitive carp are in terms of smells, I would not want that on my hands and therefore on my flies. So I just cover up and wear gloves and a buff and all that stuff. I think that's really important. And you can't go through the water kicking over rocks, splashing, pushing awake. I tell people... When you're in the area where carp are, you should go as slow as you can possibly move and then slow down even more. You know, you got to move really slowly. You got to keep your eyes peeled. Um, that's the other thing. This is, this is 100% a visual game. And where people that come out and fish with me struggle on day one is spotting the fish. You know, Dan and those guys will tell you that I see fish really well. And that's because I have a method to it and I scan you know, in a very distinct manner. I'm always scanning out about 100 feet back towards me, and I never get that kind of tunnel vision that people get where they're just looking into the water where they can see. I'm always looking out ahead for any disturbance in the water, any tail break in the surface, any nervous water, anything that would indicate that there might be a fish there so that I can then zero in on it as I get closer. You don't want to get caught just looking 10 feet ahead because that's where you can see the bottom. You got to make sure you scan out, scan back, and occasionally turn around and look behind you. And when you're scanning, the first thing you want to look for is color. Don't look for fish. Just look for differences in color in the water. So if the water is a general, the bottom is a general grayish color, and you see a patch that's lighter gray or darker gray or gold or black, that deserves extra attention. After you've identified a color, you want to look for a shape. Carp are always going to have some sort of linear shape. You know, even when they're feeding, they're, they're, there's a straight line associated with that fish. So look for a linear shape within that color. And then the third thing I look for is movement. They're almost never stone cold still. Even if they're kind of sitting still, their fins are moving or something. So I look for color, identify a shape, and then I check to see if there's any movement at all. And if there is, it's probably a fish. If there's not, it's probably a rock. And I cast out a lot of rocks. Do you ever target fish that are just sunning, the quote-unquote non-players? Um, not if I can help it. You know, you my, Yeah, one of my rules is to catch more carp, you have to cast at less. So 
you know, in other words, look for fish that are more likely to take your fly. So if, if I have fish in the area, I'm going to try to pick out the feeding fish for sure. I'm going to try to pick out the fish that looks like it's likely to feed and I'm going to avoid the sunners. Now, if I've been out walking for two hours and I haven't seen anything and I come across a group of 20, 20 fish that are sunning, I'm going to try to levitate a fly in front of their face and hope I can get a reaction bite. And with all of this, are you using a specific lens color or brand of polarized glasses? I am a, a diehard Costa Del Mar guy. Uh, they make by far the best glasses on the market. Their 580 glass lens uh, in, in a copper or an amber is absolutely my go-to. I, I keep a pair in almost every, every place I can think because that's the one thing that I, am, I don't make any shortcuts on. I go Costa 580G, and I carry two, three pairs with me on every trip. That's you, the single most important piece of gear I own. Have you tried the 580G yellow lenses now, the yellow sunrise sunrise mirror? Yeah, I, I've got a pair for the low fantastic. for low light. Yeah, they're great. It I, I don't so fish much a here. lot of low light, so but they're great. It's yeah. been so rainy here since I got them in August. That's pretty much all I've worn. I, I tell guys all the time, you know, if you're going to drop some money on gear, the first thing you should buy is a good pair of glasses. You can catch fish with any rod, you know, but buy a good pair of sunglasses. Uh, they're the coast of five eighties are just invaluable. In my opinion, I've Absolutely. worn Smith's I've tried a bunch of different kinds. Um, they're all good, but Costa's are, you'll never take them off my face. That's for sure. Right, I want to get into some flies now. Uh, do you sure. want to tell the, the, the theory and history of how you came up with the hybrid carp fly? Yeah. So the hybrid, you know, it, it catches a lot of fish. And, and I don't know why it catches fish in Florida, but I know that it does. I know why it catches fish in the Columbia River, because that's where we kind of created it. Um, it. My friend Travis Hammond and I were fishing and for years our main fly was a San Juan worm. And then for a while there, we switched to a really simple green soft tackle. And what we found is that every time we were in a sandy bottom, the San Juan worm outfished the soft tackle. And every time we were in a rocky bottom, the soft tackle outfished the San Juan worm. So what we started to figure out is the main forage on the Columbia is freshwater clams. So the carp, generally swim along and they'll smell the clams and then they'll stop and they'll start digging the clams out of the bottom. It's not really a visual thing. It's more of a smell. And as they're digging the clams out of the bottom, nymphs are swimming away and escaping. And if you watch a feeding carp on the Columbia, you'll see them dig in a hole. And like every 10 seconds or so, you'll just see them reach up and grab something out of the water column. That is a swimming nymph trying to get away. Um, so the hybrid, we basically combined the two most effective flies we had and put them together, essentially. The trick is, if we fish it right, we can imitate all the different cues that the carp feeding on clams are used to seeing. The one thing that they see is the swimming nymphs that escape when they're digging. And the second thing, with a clam, the only visual cue they have is the extended foot. You know, when a clam siphon feeds, it sticks mm -hmm. its foot up out of the mud. That's the only visual cue. So our typical method is we walk along till we see a tailing fish. We throw the hybrid at it. We sink it within about four inches of its face using a drag and drop. And if the fish 
eats it on the sink, we're good. If it doesn't, we simply let it sit on the bottom and we watch to see if the fish is going to notice the worm tail sticking up and eat it then. If that doesn't work, we pick it up and we do it again. We rarely strip it. We rarely move it. We find that it's either going to eat it mid-column or it's going to eat it when it's stone cold sitting on the bottom. So that's kind of how we came up with that. For those that aren't familiar with the drag and drop method, can you explain that? Yeah, the drag and drop, and, and there's, I think, you know, Trevor did a video on it. We all started doing this years ago, and nobody really knows who came up with it first. But in order to catch most feeding carp, because they won't chase a fly readily, you have to be really precise in your presentation and getting the fly within that window. Uh, on the big C, that window is about four to eight inches. If you're outside of eight inches, the fish is not going to move to the fly. If you're inside of four, it's probably going to spook it. So you have a really narrow area where the fly needs to sink. We found that if you drag the fly on the bottom in that window on the Columbia, it spooks the fish. But if it's falling through the column, that doesn't bother them at all. Now, I'm not a very good caster, and I can't put a fly in a four-inch window at any distance. So what we do instead is we cast about four to six feet past the fish, and the second the fly hits the water, in my case, two flies, I use a two-fly rig, we immediately lift the rod tip and slowly drag the flies just under the surface until we get them in the right position, and then we drop the rod tip and just let the flies sink to the bottom. It's pretty simple. I like it. All right. Uh, what makes a good carp fly versus a, a bad carp fly? What would you steer away from if you were telling somebody to go pick out some flies or tie something? Yeah, I'd say the, the number one thing, and this is my number one rule period for all carp fishing, is you have to know the forage. You have to know in general what the fish is feeding on. It doesn't have to be specific, but you have to know in general. So in other words, if I go to Lake Michigan or if I come to the Columbia and I hear that the guys in, at Beaver Island are fishing two-inch long bunny leeches and I show up at the Columbia and I say, well, that's a good carp fly, and I start throwing a two-inch long bunny leech at the fish on the Columbia, I'm going to spook every fish in the area. I have to know that on the Columbia, their main forage is clams and nymphs. I have to pick flies and use flies that imitate that to some degree. Same is true going to Lake Michigan. I have to have a general sense of the forage. I have to know that they're mainly eating gobies and crayfish, so I have to probably upsize my flies a little bit. Now, that's not to say that the fish on the Columbia won't eat a goby or the fish on Lake Michigan won't eat a nymph. But if I know their general forage, I'm going to be much more successful, both in my selection and how I present the fly. Any materials that don't really work? Could be too flashy, too noisy in the water? Um, I, you know, I've never really experimented too much with that. Um, you know, I know a lot of guys use rattles on bass flies. I've, I've never tried that for carp. I'd be curious to see whether what that would do. I tend to use really natural colored materials. You know, I think the carp, the carp on the Columbia don't generally engage their eyesight as their primary method to find food. It's mostly their sense of smell, you know, so you have to get really close to them. On Lake Michigan, anything that is really full of motion, rubber legs, marabou, um, bunny is really good because on Lake Michigan, those carp are fully engaged with their eyesight for most of their feeding. So you want something that they'll see and attract them. So it's, it's again, it really comes down to the forage and thinking that through. Are there any just strange oddball patterns you've caught carp on? Just um, like, Columbia, hey, I'm going to try this thing and see if it works. 
you know, the, the weirdest fly I ever caught a fish on the Columbia with is a, about a three inch long crayfish pattern. Um, what happened once I threw it out of fish and it ate it that every other fish I threw it at spooked. I've used in urban ponds for a while there, I was running out of flies and I started using, uh, just like a white maggot looking fly and they ate that for a while. Then they quit eating it. <laughs> captive, captive carp are the worst. If it's a small population in a small area, they figure it out really quickly. I forget which book I was reading that talked about the Cheeto hatch. There's somewhere where they always feed them Cheetos. So people are tying yeah, up Cheeto work. flies. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're in, into that, you know, kind of chumming stuff that would totally work. I, I personally have never fished a bread fly nor a Cheeto pattern. It's just not my cup of tea to go somewhere where I know they're, they're surface feeding, but it would, there's zero question that it would work. You know, if you go somewhere where the people feed the ducks a lot, a bread fly would absolutely work. Yeah, I tried that in Lake Burley Griffin in Canberra, Australia, and I couldn't find any carps, so I ended up going to the shop and buying three yeah. dough ball deer hair flies and a loaf of bread, and that didn't work either. Nothing came up except yeah. swans. Yeah. Huge swans. And they wanted the there's bread. A, there's a local lake out here close to my house where they feed the ducks. And I take used to take my kids there to the park all the time. And we could have easily caught carp on bread flies there. But, yeah, yeah, that's not really my cup of tea. I've just never done it. Not a challenge to doing that. It would be kind of fun. <laughs> you know, there's some big ones. There's some 20, 30-pounders in that Whoa. lake. Yeah, I'll have to try. I should should take the kids out there and let them do it sometime. So speaking of, of carp size, have you ever seen a baby carp? I've never seen anything smaller than like a, a watermelon you'd get at the grocery store. Yeah, it is like, pretty rare to see them below five pounds, that's for sure. Like they say you never um, see a baby look, pigeon. Like no yeah, one's ever seen a baby pigeon in New York. Yeah. If you, if you, if you go to the areas where they spawn in the spring... I remember one time I was at Banks Lake, um, and there was a Orvis. It was the first ever Orvis carp fly fishing tournament. It was held at Banks Lake in Washington, and I was in the lead on big fish, most fish, uh, ugliest fish because I caught one with only one eye. Oh. And then the last, the last category was smallest carp, and I knew there was a guy that had me beat. So I was walking around Banks trying to figure out how to catch the smallest carp possible. And I saw, it was spring, I saw a black cloud of carp fry, which you don't see very often. But when you do, it's like a, it's like a you know, black ball of little baby fish. And that, that's what it is. And they're about an inch long, I've half inch that. long. Never heard of that until and, just now. Well, I, I, I found a bunch on banks. So I ran them down and I threw my, I, I scooped them up in my baseball hat and I took a photo of one next to the measuring tool, and I tried to pass that off as the uh-huh. smallest fly. I got disqualified because I didn't catch it on the fly, so I did not win that category. But I've uh, gone, if you look in the spring, you'll find them. I've gone down to Tidal Basin in D.C. and caught inch-and-a-half-long shad on pheasant tails, little baby yeah. shad fries. Yeah, yeah little fish got voracious appetites. I don't, I don't know small what the baby fly. carp eat. I see, them, uh, I see the baby carp all the time on the Columbia Slough in the spring, and like, the smallmouth bass just destroy them. Like, what, like, a, like an 8-inch fish, a 10-inch? What's a baby carp to you? Oh, like half-inch to an inch-long little black fry. Have you ever yeah. seen one like the size of like a hot dog bun? One time. There's a, there's a little tiny pond near my house that I saw in the spring, a whole bunch of baby carp. 
and I, a, a bait guy caught one and I took a picture and it was about, it fit on his hand with room left over on either end. Weird. It was the only time I've ever seen a tiny one other than in like a fish farm photo. Yeah, that's one thing that's always kind of baffled me. I've never seen a small carp. I think until they get to be a couple pounds, I think they're mostly food for other things. They're just so hiding out. I just don't think many of them survive. I think they get just decimated until they get to a bigger size. Okay. Um, are there any uh, notable tires out there that people should look up for some of their patterns? Um, you know, the the two go-to carp flies on my list are the hybrid. And then um, my, my buddy Trevor Tanner, his, his fly, the trouser worm. I fish that a lot. Those Mitages? are my favorite two flies. Yeah, yeah, trouser trouser worm. Worm. yeah the, the trouser worm. That, um, that's the front fly in my two-fly rig 95% of the time. It's big, it's visible, it's heavy. And then I fish that tiny hybrid behind it. So I can use that front fly to kind of direct my hybrid wherever I want it. So I use it mostly as a tool fly, but it's a great fly, and, and the fish absolutely eat it. What about some of the videos I've seen? It looks like there's an indicator. Is that just the second fly in the air while the first fly is being dropped down on their nose? Yep, that's that's my two fly rig. So that's the, the the thing that looks like an indicator is Trevor's giant trouser worm, and then 20 inches behind that, I have the the hybrid. And is that just named after like a small version of a trouser snake? <laughs> You'll have to ask Trevor where he came up with that name. That's a great name. Yeah. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com you ever catch weird fish that you would consider bycatch when fishing for carp? Most of the time, if you catch a carp, people will be like, oh, it's bycatch. But you're the opposite. Yeah. So what have you picked up carp fishing that was not intended? So, I mean, typically we are targeting carp. You know, and so we're, we're sight fishing for them, and that's really all we catch. On the Columbia, while we are sight fishing for carp, we are fortunate enough to fairly regularly see feeding sturgeon. And, of course, we always try to catch the feeding sturgeon, and we've had a little bit of luck. Uh, my friend David has caught a, caught a couple. Um, I've caught a couple. We have hooked some really big oversized sturgeon that doesn't go real well on an eight-weight rod, but I that's fun to do. Yeah, we hooked a, a nine-footer one year. What? It stood up on its tail and busted us off. Yeah, it was in about four feet of water, tailing like a carp. <laughs> on a clam bed it was fantastic one of the coolest things i've ever seen what kind of uh, we, reel are you using for these carp that you would hook a sturgeon on yeah i broke the sturgeon off immediately there was no sense in even fighting it yeah. uh i use a uh, orvis um their mirage i love their mirage that's a great reel it's a smooth drag so, but we also you know we also frequently catch um small catfish on the columbia we see those quite a bit and Smallmouth bass, we get carp blocked by smallmouth bass on regular occasion. You know, flies are sinking in the vicinity of the carp, and a bass runs out and eats it. Uh, on Lake Michigan, we catch a lot of drum, freshwater drum. They're they tend to, to be mix. slimy. They're right? awesome to catch. You know, they mix right in with the groups of carp, and they they eat gobies. And sometimes a drum will break out of the group and eat your fly instead of a carp. 
Uh, one year I caught a 34 pound flathead catfish. Uh, that was pretty cool. So we, we see some fun stuff. You know, the, the nice thing about carp fishing for me, cause again, I, I'm not the kind of guy that can just swing flies and hope there's a fish in the water. We walk, we carry a fly rod, and we look for cool shit. And when we see it, we try to catch it. I don't care if it's a catfish. You know, I'm targeting carp, but if I see a nice smallmouth, I throw at that. If I see a flathead catfish, I absolutely cast at that. If we see a tailing sturgeon, we go sneak up on it and see what happens. I mean, and that's kind of what we do. I would love to see a tailing sturgeon and someone sight casting to it. That would be pretty ridiculous. My friend Justin was here in uh, July this year, and we took his son out fishing. His son caught a couple carp on the fly, which was really cool. And towards evening, it was getting dark, and we were walking down one of my favorite areas, and we saw three sturgeon, all six foot or better, in the shallows, kind of milling around, uh, and his kid got to see it. It's really cool. It's a really neat moment. Are there any just strange things you've seen while you're out and about? Any crazy things you've found while you're fishing out there? You know, the worst I see, and you alluded to it earlier, is the 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 bow hunters. I refuse to call them bow fishermen. They're yeah. bow hunters. And there's nothing wrong with hunting for fish, and there's nothing wrong with killing a few fish. Unfortunately, the way I see it done out here is they kill them and throw them on the bank. You know, if you're going to kill them and take them and use them for food or fertilizer or feed whatever, that's fine. But don't just leave them on the bank to rot. You know, that seems a little silly to me. There's a bow fishing tournament or bow hunting tournament in Boardman, Oregon every year out near eastern Washington. And I went out there one year the weekend after the tournament, and they had killed 9,000 pounds of fish that they brought back. But they, they cull. So that everybody only brought back three fish. And they killed 9,000 pounds that they, that they weighed, and we saw dead fish everywhere. It was really kind of sad. I'm sure that's got to smell fantastic. Yeah, it's not fun. You'll see, uh, you'll walk up to an area, and there'll be 30 dead fish lined up for a photo just laying on the ground. That, that kind of makes me a little sad. Now, it doesn't hurt the carp population. I mean, just, you know, it doesn't. I just think it seems silly, but there's plenty for fun. of carp. Yeah, I, I agree. It's kind of dumb. I did that when I was a kid, and, and I grew up. Anything you found that's been really bizarre? I, uh, you know, I found a I was carp fish a couple years ago. Found a prosthetic leg. <laughs> Nothing that tops that, man. That's crazy. <laughs> the, the urban fishing. There's always uh, adult novelties. I find, and we got a Visa gift card a couple weeks ago out of the river. Oh, nice. So my wife was going to check <laughs> nice. to see if anything's still on it. Yeah, if you're fishing the slough around Portland, you have to occasionally watch out for the homeless camps. Yeah, I saw those under the overpasses in Denver. They were, yeah. But those guys knew what I was doing, and they were suggesting different flies and techniques. And they they oh. just observe carp fishermen all the time. Denver, was, you know, the South Platte downtown Denver is, is heavily fished, and the fish are really pressured. It's a tough, tough fishery. And now that it's more popular than it was, I'm sure the people that have been doing it out there for years are a little flustered. That there's more crowds out there, which was once their sort of secret. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, one of the best guys on the river, Chris Galvin, he's, he's got a fly that works extremely well on the river. And he calls it Fly X. And there's never been a picture of that sucker on, on social media. I've got about a dozen of them in my box. And I'm under strict orders to never put a picture of that on social media. <laughs> Keep it old school where not everyone gets to see it. That's right. <laughs> 
But Chris does win the carp slam almost every year, so there's a reason. He knows what he's doing, and he's got a good good technique and good good flies. So besides the way you've learned to sneak up on them, the fly you're throwing, dragging and dropping, what other just tr- things you've just learned, kind of uh, eureka moments, something you were like, holy crap, this is going to change the way I carp fish. Any of those have come around? Yeah, I mean, the biggest tip I can give somebody – you know, when they go for the first time is unless you are fishing to carp that are being predatory, because occasionally they are predatory, like on Lake Michigan, and they'll chase flies. In a scenario like that, it's pretty easy to tell when a carp is eating your fly, right? You're going to feel it. You're going to see it engulf a big fly. But for the most part, carp can suck in a fly without moving from about a third of their body length away. So if your fly is on the bottom, within a third of the body length of the fish, it can eat that fly without swimming over to it. So the trick is knowing the moment that it does. Most carp feed by sucking in sediment. They sort through that sediment to pick out the food particles and trap it in their mouth with their tongue. They have a tongue. They trap it against the roof of their mouth, and then they eject the rest of the sediment out the gills or out the front. So when they pick something up, a fly, they know it's not food, and they eject it pretty quickly takes about a second so the trick is to be able to set the hook within that time that the carp has the fly in its mouth so what i tell people is cast your fly drag and drop and when the fly is in position and you're letting it sink stop looking at your fly and immediately turn all your attention to the carp watch the fish and if the fish does anything different than it was doing before your fly was in position set the hook. If the fish's head turns to the left or right, set the hook. If it changes angle in the water, set the hook. If its tail speeds up, set the hook. If you see the gills puff out, set the hook. They can suck that fly in and they will immediately eject it. So when your fly's in the right position and the fish changes, it's eating something and it might be your fly. So you got to set the hook. And no strike indicators for you. You're doing it all just by watching the fish's body yeah just reading its body motion read the body okay yeah. if you're if you're really fortunate and on the columbia you know with the hybrid about seven out of every 10 fish that we catch we see their white mouth puff and that's because as the fly is sinking through the column they have to pick their head up out of the dirt out of the cloud and you'll see their white mouth flare as they suck in that sinking fly and it's it, it changes color so you see a distinct white puff for about six or seven out of every 10 fish we catch. But the real pros out here see the fish's tail push the fish to the left and set the hook on that. You know, and that's not the right, well, whatever, okay. whatever, whatever direction. But we see that fish's tail move and we know that he's turning to the fly. And what's funny is when they're turning to the fly, in most cases, they're turning and eating at the same time. And you just don't see the mouth for whatever reason. Man, I, so you just got to get really good at that. I wish you'd figured out that they turn their tail left and then they always eat. If that was yeah, true, I'd be, be watching great. that tail. That'd be a great way to do it. Yeah. Sometimes I set the hook just because the fish looks excited and that works out. Do you carry a net to land your carp? Yeah. The two things that I always carry with me are a net and a scale. Um, you know, we're, I'm really, I've been doing this for a long time now and I'm basically after 20 pound fish or better. 
Uh, so I carry a scale so I can make sure I hit the mark. And I know that mark is arbitrary and bullshit, but that's my mark. So, you know, I carry a scale and I weigh anything that I think is going to be 20 pounds or better. And I always carry a net. It just makes it easier to deal with the fish. They're big fish. Even a small one is 10 pounds. So I carry a scale, a net just to make it quicker and easier to handle them. How can you visualize them when you're targeting one to determine its potential weight? Yeah, I'm pretty good at that. I can tell in the water from pretty good ways away how big the fish is within a pound or two at this point. I've just been doing it a long time and I've seen a lot of fish. Like the guy Once at the I circus? get him in the Yeah. He's like guess, guess, guess my weight, right? Once I get him in the net, I'm I'm really good. So is my friend Justin. We we always play a game with each other where we get him in the net and we both have to guess the weight. And we're we're pretty good at it anymore, you know, just cuz we've caught and weighed a lot of fish. How big is um, your net? I use a pretty big Fraybill net. I don't know the size, but it's their probably their second biggest short-handled net. Uh, and I put a I just put a carabiner, you know, rock climbing carabiner on mm-hmm. the on the hoop, and I just clip it to my belt, and then I can just one-handed unclip it and leave the carabiner on the net and net them, you know, weigh them, I weigh them in the net, and off we go. Do you keep track of any of the weights and what you caught them on? You I used to. I don't anymore. Um, I used to when I first started. You know, I, I catch about, I catch somewhere between 20 and 30 fish a year that are over 20 pounds. Um, this year, I think I got to 32. And that, that's a pretty good year. Most years, I'm in the low 20s to mid 20s, uh, fish over 20 pounds. But I usually catch, you know, I've caught five over 30. The 30 the pound carp. There's not as many 30-pound carp caught on the fly as you would see if you believed every picture you saw on Instagram. You know, there's just not as many as you'd think. I've caught five. Um, I think my friend Justin's caught two, maybe three. You know, a lot of 20-pounders. But, you know, again, Between a 20 and a 10 is pretty damn big. It's, it's significant. If you think about it, I, I catch about 350 carp a year, and less than roughly 10% or just under that are over 20 pounds. So, you know, for, you know, a lot of the 20 pounders you see on social media are are clearly not 20 pounds. There's just not as many as you think caught on the fly. The bigger the fish are, the less often they come into the shallows where we actually see them. Um, The bigger fish tend to feed out deeper. That's why you see most of the biggest fish caught in the spring when when they're in the shallow spawning. That's when I've seen just monsters that don't even fit in our net. We've had our nets bend during the spring. Yep, that's it. And then when summer rolls around, those fish do come into the shallows, but probably really quickly, and maybe in the morning, maybe at night, and then they spend most of the time in the deeper water. So I catch most of my big fish early in the year or late in the year. We catch them in the spring or we catch them late when they come in to feed before winter. You know, in the summer, it's really hard to catch a 25-pound carp in the middle of August. You don't see them that often. And where are you going for a, a nice lunch when you're taking your friends out on the, as you call it, the big C? You got a favorite, oh, like, pullover joint? Well, we don't eat lunch. <laughs> like, on, on the way, like, on the way home, do you guys stop for, like, a Hell beer no. and a burger? Hell no. We fish until it's dark, and then we crash in a cheap hotel, or we go back to my house. Uh, my friends laugh at me because they, they, real, they all know by now that they have to stop at a gas station and buy a bunch of beef jerky and Gatorade because I'll forget that shit, too. They better bring that. <laughs> We're I'm not have, much of a host. You got to try Biltong. That's what we're going to be chowing down on on our steelhead trip coming up. 
It's uh, South I'll try African it out. I'll, I'll write that down. Biltong is pretty yeah. fantastic. And your yeah, family? Are your family anglers? No. I mean, my daughter and son fished with me when they were littler. Um, they're 12 and 13 now, and they, they don't go as often. My wife wants nothing to do with it because she knows that I'm kind of an idiot and I'm a bit of a glutton. I'm not the kind of guy that can go out for like a couple hours. I go out all day and I don't eat and I don't drink and I get back in the car and I have a headache because I haven't eaten, drinking anything all day. So you're doing eight miles with no fluids. Yeah. I mean, I try to bring water, but I, I frequently forget. I'm not very smart. Would you I get a little focused that straw that you can just drink out of the water? Or if I was smarter, too scary. If I was smarter, I would own one, but I don't. Yeah. I've already got uh, two gallons of water lined up for the Salmon River. That's what you need. I, I I need to do a better job of that as I get older. But we're 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 very focused. When I go fishing, I tend to be really really focused. I like this change in the season now. I don't have to have all the like jugs of ice water and Nalgene's frozen ready to go. Yeah, it's cool out now. It's it's just kind of my favorite time of the year when it changes and. I'm not worrying about sunburn and dehydration every day. Oh, I totally agree. I, I wish that you could carp fish out here in the, you know, winter because it would be great. I like the weather much better. My brother-in-law used to live in Portland, and I went out to visit him once, but I don't think I fished in Portland. There's good fishing. Like I said, I right right underneath the 205 bridge on Marine Drive. You know, you can you can go out there and. And you'll find carp if you just walk around that area. You don't mind giving a spot out online? No, not there. Okay. That's uh That's you send everyone else to your other spot is empty. Well, you know, when I go by myself, um, I'm typically in the gorge, to be honest with you. That's that's where I tend to go. Uh, I'm looking for giant fish. But again, I don't have a problem walking for three miles and seeing three fish. So, you know, I'll go in the gorge and I'll just wander and be happy to get three shots at 20 pounders um kind of the way i'm wired but there's there's a lot of carp right downtown portland if you just walk the river you know just walk along marine drive is is a great area to just cover ground and do they you know carp are pretty well known as being destructive are there any detrimental effects to all the carp out there in the columbia not so much the columbia is really rocky and it's a hard bottom for the most part so they can't really tear it up too badly. Now, they destroyed the Malheur Reservoir out in eastern Oregon. You know, they've they got to figure out what to do there. If carp, carp shouldn't be everywhere, but there are places where they can be and they, they're not going to destroy the fishery. Uh, Lake Michigan's another one that they're not doing any damage out there because, again, it's a really hard-bottomed lake. Do you believe in the theory that fish eggs are transported by bird feathers? And that's how like these carp have just gotten in every body of water, even if it's not attached to another body. You know, honestly, I don't know anything about that. That's one of those things that it's a bit of mystery. And I, I keep asking people and no one has the right answer. I don't know, our friends have a pond in the Catskills and they dug it out in the middle of a field from, and there's a spring and it filled it in and it's full of bass and bluegill. And they swear yeah. they didn't, they didn't stock a single fish in there. It was dug out for the horses to drink. And I go up there, and uh, no one fishes it, so I can catch 20 bass in 15 minutes. It's awesome. Yeah, that's great. But there's no carp in the pond. <sighs> that would be too easy, man. All right. Uh, 
anything else about searching for carp, stalking them, how to be a better carp angler? Is there anything you found out about carp that blew your mind? Like when I you found know, I out get, they don't have stomachs, I thought that was pretty darn interesting. You know, the the one thing I I try to remind people of is it, it's more hunting than fishing. You know, you trout fish, you steelhead fish, you bass fish. You're covering water, and you're trying to make make the fish kind of come to you. And you, you don't really want to think about carp fishing in that same way. You want to realize that your job is to find a single fish that you can present a fly to and once you change your mindset it makes it easier to to catch them um i think the the play the where people struggle is they just kind of think oh i'm going fishing well when you're going carp fishing it's kind of not the same thing as going trout fishing or or something like that i got a couple of uh the random questions i like to ask people if you want to jump into those yeah, these, are, these are the fun ones. All right. If you could choose a superpower to make you a better angler or a better carp angler, what would you, which one would you like? Oh, I would have teleportation easily. Nice. Yeah. I would spend a lot of time in Louisiana, though. Redfish? Oh, yeah. Red, well, Just saltwater version of carp? Drum. Red drum? Yeah, I go down there for black drum. I, I'm all about the black drum. Yeah. Those things get not, ugly when they get big. Those, they feed those just barbels. Yeah, the black drum are like the Marsh's version of a giant carp. Uh, I would go down there for the black drum. It's like the yeah. snook uh, is the southern part of the hemisphere's version of the striped bass. They yeah. occupy that same niche. All right. Uh, yeah. Favorite Harrison Ford movie? Favorite Harrison Ford movie? Oh, probably Star Wars. Nice. All right. Uh, Episode Star four? Wars. Yeah. For okay. Sure. If you only had one species of bird to tie with, what would it be? Uh, pheasant. Good. I like that one. What is your most ridiculous phobia? Um, I'm deathly afraid of spiders. All right, that's not that's not that ridiculous. That's that's common. Yeah, except out where I fish, that can be a problem. <laughs> what do you have out there? Oh, uh, there's just spiders all over. Oh, yeah. Well, I always ugh. tell clients when when they hook a branch and we get up to it, I always say, do you do you mind spiders? Because these big ones always just drop in the boat. They're all just in the trees. You don't see them. They're really thin, but they'll fit in the pot. I mean, if you were to touch one, they're huge. Oh, yeah. Spiders gross me yeah. out. Uh, when is it okay to pose with a rod on your shoulder for a photograph? Uh, I don't think I've ever done that. Good I answer. guess I don't care. I don't know why people do, though. Yeah. Never is the correct answer. <laughs> That's uh, what I thought. It seems a little silly. What's the most yeah. unusual fly tying material you have? Uh, I'm not very creative. I mean, I, I've got a bunch of those uh, squiggly worm things that you get off the toy. Yeah. But I I tried them once and decided that the rubber thing is not for me. So I don't, I don't oh, use them I'll anymore. I'll be tied a dozen purple ones tomorrow. Uh, yeah, tomorrow for Saturday's client. All right. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite fly fishing book? Uh, anything by John Gerard. If you had access to a flux capacitor and could travel back to pre-human uh, like destruction of nature, where would you travel to fish? Um, I'd go. Yeah, I'd love to see Montana. I'd love to see my hometown area before, you know, now for modern times. I can't imagine what Bozeman in that area looked like. 
back then. Just wide Rivers open. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Those old uh, 18, like 40s paintings where it's just a vast landscape. Yeah, would have been awesome. Yeah, definitely cool. high on my list. You may have already answered this one, but what item, if left at home during a fishing trip, would screw you over the most or frustrate yeah, you? Definitely, definitely my Costas. I, I, would, I would freak out. I would, I'm sure I'd buy some cheap gas station alternative and bitch about it the entire trip. Yeah. And last one, uh, is there any food that you will never eat? You know, years ago probably, but the older I get, the more adventurous I get. I'd, I'd try pretty much anything. I've had Rocky Mountain oysters, you know, those are good. Uh, you ever get over to Pock Pock? Uh, I haven't been to Pock Pock in a long time. I want to eat there. I won't. I don't want to go to the New York one. I want the actual one over there. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been there. Long time. What about the the food trucks? You get love out to those? food trucks. We go all the time. Yeah, you're yeah. pretty spoiled out there. Oh yeah, Portland's got great food. We're very very fortunate. If you come out here, go to Andina. That's my favorite restaurant. Okay. And my brother in law goes usually goes to Portland every year for Thanksgiving. He's yeah. down in uh, Oakland now. Nice. But yeah, yeah he, we're going to London for Thanksgiving this year. Should be interesting. All right. They cut the turkey uh, the backwards, though, since they drive on the other side. All right. Anything else we should know before I let you go for the evening? No, I appreciate your time. Uh, hopefully, people get something out of this and have I did. some fun chasing some carp, man. Yeah. Very cool. All right, John Montana Bartlett, thank you so much for your time. And where can we find you online to follow your carp fishing adventures? You know, easiest way anymore is on uh, Instagram. I'm on John Montana Carp on Instagram. That's probably the easiest way to track me down. Feel free to shoot me a question if you need. If anybody needs anything, I'm happy to try to help. That's how this started. I asked yeah. you a question. I was like, you know what? I need to get you on the podcast. There you go. Cool. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks, Rob. Have a good one. Yeah. Bye. Take care. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv brave anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv